There's a, there's a thing I want to talk about today that absolutely may be the most important decision that you make in any given day. It's probably, if not the most important, it's at least one of the top important decisions that you'll make every day. It's a, it's a decision that will actually shape the rest of your day and how you start off that day with that decision, uh, again, will, will determine how you are seen how you see the world, but not only how you see the world, but how the world sees you. That's a big thing. Now you think about that. That's a big decision that we're talking about here. If it determines the lenses by which you see the world and the world sees you, that's probably a bigger image maker in your life than the car you wear, the clothes you wear. You don't wear a car, do you? Uh, The car you drive and the clothes you wear and the and the networks you have, and the resume that you're building. More than that is this one decision. This one decision is humongous. One person said it like this, it is the advanced man of the true selves, of our true selves. It roots, its roots are inward, but its fruit, outward. It is our best friend or our worst enemy. It is more honest and more consistent than our words, and it is, it is an outward look based on past experiences. It is the thing which draws people to us or repels them. It is never content until it is expressed. It is the librarian of our past, the speaker of our present, and the prophet of our future. In a word, we are talking about our attitude. Our attitude. Our attitude is that that element that, again, determines how we see the world and how the world sees us. Because the way we express our attitude, the way we internalize our attitude, the way we carry ourselves is based so much on our attitude. Attitude is based on so many other things. It's... uh, it's based, I mean, it, it deals with the, the elements that are in our past, as, as we just read. It, it deals with the, the, the perspective on our future, and it, it just is it's the mood that we're in. It was Herb Kellerher, who's the founder of Southwest Airlines, said, We hire for attitude and teach skills if we have to. The one thing you cannot change is attitude. I've always felt in my own hiring practices that I want to look for passion. I want to look for that attitude because you can send them to conferences. You can give them the skills. You can give them the OJT. You can give them that, and they'll get the skills. But the attitude, you either have it or you don't. And sometimes, again, we get up in the morning, and we get to choose what that attitude is for the day. I heard a story, a legend, I guess you will, or a fairy tale, more like it, of two buckets, and one had an optimistic view on life, and one had a pessimistic view on life. The pessimist bucket went to and approached the well, and he said this, there's never been a life as disappointing as mine. He said, I never come away from the well full, but what I return again empty. The optimistic bucket said it like this, there has never been a life. There has never been such a happy life as mine. I never come to the well empty, but that I go away again full. You know, cup half empty, cup half full. I know we can play all those little, uh, those little images in our mind, but when you bring it back to Scriptures and what the Bible has to say about it, you can't miss Philippians. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to read just one time of eight different times that Paul uses a very important word. 
But in this whole process, we need to understand that there's a life principle here, that your attitude is your choice. You've got an attitude, and you get to choose it every day of your life. When you look in the, the, the book of Philippians, you find again and again throughout his writings how he is writing with such an amazing, overwhelming, positive attitude. And here we are getting ready to go into Thanksgiving week, and I thought, what a great time to look at our attitudes, that maybe we might set off into thanks living and not just thanksgiving, and that we might literally see a change of a paradigm in our perspective, in our point of view on life. Because when you look at Paul and you read the, uh, the, the book, the letter to the, to the church at Philippi, you, you're finding a, him writing this positive, overwhelming, rejoicing kind of book. You think, okay, he must be writing from some beautiful castle. He must be writing from over a prime rib as he's eating. He must be writing from some Miami Beach kind of experience along the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he's getting his inspiration, and he's telling us to rejoice in it all. But in the reality, he's not. Right? The reality is, this is one of what's called by scholars his prison epistles. The prison epistles are the are, are the are the the letters that he wrote to the churches while he was in jail. In jail not for doing something grossly illegal or immoral as we might see it in our worldview, but literally for being a Christian and living it out is why he was in jail. Christianity was outlawed and yet he was being a propagator of the Christian faith. He was telling the Christian faith. He was having this amazing influence and it was pretty much the rule of thumb when Paul came into town, either a riot or a revival broke out. And the only way you could maybe stop Paul from his great influential power that he had was to put him in jail. And so they did. They locked him in a jail. They tied him to uh, hand and foot into a mildew-ridden prison cell and gave him just enough food to survive on. And in that time, he was even chained to, to Roman soldiers at, at times. And even he first in chapter 1 being able to share with the imperial guard because he was constantly under watch. He wasn't under some kind of house arrest. He was in jail. And he was actually, while he was in jail, still sharing his faith. Still having an amazing outlook on life. In fact, you don't have to go very far into chapter 1 of Philippians, excuse me, and you find again and again the attitude that Paul had while he is chained and in jail. It's a letter of encouragement while he is in prison. Can, can you catch that? He is in prison and he is writing from his prison experience words of encouragement to those who are free. If anybody should be writing anybody, if anybody should be encouraging anybody from my perspective anyway, it's the person that's free on the outside should be writing to the person on the inside. But here's this amazing point of view that he has. That if we could just kind of step into that point of view in life, it would change our attitudes. And therefore change the way the world sees us and the way we see the world. But you go in chapter 1 and verse 2, you find that he greets them with grace and peace. One of the most common phrases that he says throughout his writings. But verse 3, he talks about, I thank my God. He goes on to say, upon every remembrance of you. So he's in the process of being in jail and he's thanking God. For those that he knows and loves. Verse 4. Offering prayer with what? Joy. I'm praying for you. 
But it's not coming out of self-pity. It's not coming out of woe is me. It's not any of that. He says it's literally bubbling up because there's a joy inside of me. Verse 6 says, for I am confident. I mean, this is not a man shaking in his boots. This is not a man waffling in his faith. This is a man who's solid. This is a man who's secure. This is a man with a perspective. This is a man with an attitude that I want to have in my life. That if I am in the prison of my world, that if I am shackled in my world, that if I don't have everything the way I like it when I like it, that I will still have the attitude that Paul had. Because again, eight different times in this book alone, he uses one very key word. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, hopefully you've got your Bibles there. He says this, it's not very long, read it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, if you didn't hear me the other six times, let me tell you twice in one verse. Let me just kind of keep saying it again. Even as I close out my writings, and even back in chapter 3, he says, finally rejoice. He thought he was finished. He kept thinking and kept writing. And so this is amazing perspective on life. This word rejoice is the Greek word karate, where we get our English word charismatic from. And I think about the contrast between a 21st century charismatic and a 1st century charismatic. World of difference. Because it wasn't based on his naming and claiming. It wasn't based on his prosperity gospel that he was rejoicing. Because it was far from prosperity. It was far from a name it and claim it faith. His faith was very destined. Or excuse me, his life was very destitute. But his faith was very destined. How do we, without sounding Sunday schoolish, now I mean by that, I mean getting this whole religious jargon going and then walking out of here and, and just forgetting everything that was just said. How do I literally live out my life with an attitude that I can have a charismatic ability about me, a, a rejoicing attitude about me that literally I can be in the prisons of life and I can be in, uh, sh- sold short in life and I can be betrayed in life and I can be let down in life and yet it will not affect me. Literally, I will not allow my circumstances to control my attitude. I will control my attitude. How, do I, how, how does that happen? I think there's some baseline perspectives that we've got to improve on. And I mean baseline. I mean, if we can build on these three things, if we can build on these three things, because these three things, as true as they were in Paul's life, they're true in our life. If we can get our baseline set, then I think we can have some building blocks to improve our attitudes throughout our days and throughout our life. One baseline decision that we need to improve on is we need to look past the ways of others. We look past the ways of others. I don't know about you, but people drive me crazy. And not in a good way. People kind of let you down. People kind of push your buttons. People kind of, you know, whether they're in the church or they're outside the church, whether they're in your job or they're outside your job, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your family, all right? You're about to spend the holidays with them, so there's a perfect message for this time, all right? As we go into this time, you know, how do you deal with, with people. How do you handle the people? Probably one of the most famous quoted verse, not verses, but statements uh, on, on attitude is actually part of the Nordstrom's 
uh, first pages of their employee manual, the Pennsylvania Highway Patrol contacted the pastor who first wrote this statement and said, we would like to put it into our training manual. So police are looking at it, Nordstrom's looking at it. And here's a pastor in Texas who wrote this statement. Chuck Swindoll made this statement. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude, attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past. It's more important than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. Other people, notice that, influencing the attitude. No, it doesn't love it. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, skill. It will break, it will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is is play on what one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% on how you react. Wow. If we could just take that last sentence and just really absorb it into our skin, into our life, that life isn't what has been dealt to us. Life isn't all the circumstances around us. Life is how we deal with what's been handed us. It's our perspective. It's our values. And so much of the time, it's the people in our world that make us the most agitated. They get under our skin the most. Even Paul, when you look in Paul's letter to the Philippi church, he's actually having very big issues, not with unbelievers. Sure, he's in jail because of unbelievers. But it's actually Christians who are preaching a gospel alternative motives. And we don't know exactly what the motives were, but they were out there and they were sharing the gospel from a wrong attitude. In fact, they were glad Paul was in prison. They were hoping that the fact that they were preaching the gospel would make Paul's suffering even greater. Now, can you imagine this? These are Christians. Christians. Christians don't act like this, right? Right? I mean, Christians should not be rejoicing when a brother is in prison. But how does Paul respond to this? I mean, he's helpless. He's a victim. He's, he's behind the jail. He can't do anything. But yet he's having this element happen outside. Pick up reading with me in verse 14. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident of the Lord in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most of the brothers. Not all of the brothers. Most of them are doing better. Most of them are gaining encouragement from Paul. Most of them are in line with Paul. But you know how many people it takes to be a burr in your saddle? One. It didn't take many. It didn't even take the most. It didn't even take the majority. It just takes one, two, three people getting a little momentum behind them, stirring the pot a little bit, because most of the people were in line with Paul. But now let's pick up at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not seriously, but thinking, here it is, to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're literally out to get me. They're not doing it from right motives. They're not doing it in the right manner. It's, it's absolutely messed up people. Now go on, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Every time I, you see the word rejoice in, in the book of Philippians, what I've done is I've just circled it. Because this is the theme, this is the central theme of the, of the letter to the Philippi church. He says, listen, I know those people are against me. I know they're jabbing me. I know they're speaking against me. I know that they're preaching the gospel in, in, in impure motives. I know it, I know it, but they're preaching the gospel. And for that, I rejoice. Because, see, Paul's attitude on life was not so much about what other people thought about him. It wasn't about him. It was about God. It was about his fame. It was about his name. Marian Anderson, a black accomplished concert soloist. She lived in the pre-civil rights era in the 1930s and 1940s and and wasn't allowed to, to even sing in Carnegie Hall. But thanks to Eleanor Roosevelt, she was able to, to sing in Washington, D.C. before the Lincoln Monument. She sang to over a thousand people. She was interviewed at the end of her life and asked, what was the most meaningful part of your life? What was it that meant the most to you in your life? Growing up and, and singing and all this performing. She talked about a, how a famous writer, or excuse me, a famous singer said she was the best voice of the century. She remembered her private concert that she gave at the White House before the Roosevelts and the King of England. She reviewed the $10,000 from the Bach Award that she was given for what she had given back to her hometown. She remembered on Easter Sunday when she sang before the Lincoln Memorial and 75,000 observers were there with her. Many of them from the judicial, the legislative, and executive branches of government. But she did not choose any of those as the most meaningful experience of her life. She said this. She said when she was able to go to her mama, and she said, Mama, you won't have to do washing anymore. And I thought about that story, and I thought, all these great accomplishments, all of this so all this promotion, all of these accomplishments, but yet what was most meaningful to her was when she was able to tell her mother, you won't have to do washing anymore. I'm making enough. See, the attitude of it's not about me, but it's about how I can serve you. It's not about my plans, but it's about His plan. See, if I, if it could only allow, or don't allow others to shape my attitude, but allow my attitude to shape others, is a far more biblical model. How is my attitude shaping my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors, my co-workers, my spouse, my mother, my father, my grandparents? How am I a part of a positive attitude in the whole? Because when Paul had these people as a burr in his side, he didn't let that stop him from rejoicing. Talk about a perspective, he had it. Here's number two, baseline thing. 
baseline elements. That can't allow people around me to determine my attitude. Number two is give past the circumstances of life. Listen, life is going to punch you in the gut. It's going to slap you in the face. It's going to be unfair to you. People will be unfair to you again. You will be looking at life and you will say, listen, I can't give because. Give my life, give my time, give my treasures, whatever. I, you kind of hunker down into yourself. If, you, if you're in chapter, if you go over chapter 2 and look with me at verse 14. And notice again the attitude of the man in jail that he has. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without what? Say that again. Let's, let's read the whole first statement because we could just stop on that one. All right, read it with me. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Let's keep going, man. I love it. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Stop. Just, just just, gather this, that the man in jail, the man in mildew, the man with eating molded bread, the man chained to soldiers is telling us, stop grumbling. You don't have any... Listen, what we need to do is we need to stop grumbling and we need to start shining. We need to stop grumbling and we need to start illuminating. What does light do? What does light do? It gives energy. It gives warmth. It gives illumination. And if we have the right attitude, we can step into a circumstance that isn't so perfect and isn't so right. And if we have the right attitude, we can bring illumination. We can bring warmth. We can bring perspective. We can bring a totally different angle to it if we come at it with the right attitude. And we can't allow the circumstances of our world to shape our attitude. We need to be the heat, the energy, the illumination of this world. Now skip, keep going with me. Follow along. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured, that I may be proud that I did not uh, run in vain and labor in vain, even if I am to be, here's the word, poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad to rejoice. There it is again, rejoice. With you all, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Two different times he uses the word again, rejoice. Now notice this. Notice the statement that he made. That he was in prison, likely tied to his affiliation with this church. I'm here on your account. But listen, don't let, that, don't let that become the issue. I am rejoicing that I'm here. I have the right attitude that I'm here. And that, that whole analogy, that whole metaphor of being poured out as a drink offering, you can go back to the Old Testament, but most likely scholars believe that he's referring to because of the paganism of Central, uh, of Central Asia at that time, or Asia Minor at that time. Because of the paganism that was around, there were offerings that they would pour out to, to their pagan gods. He said, listen, I may pour it out in this pagan world, but I want it to be a sweet aroma. I want to be here on your account, and I'm going to rejoice despite it all. 
see, there, there comes a time of sacrifice. And in that sacrificial living, in that giving up, that it will become, that it will pull, and the circumstances will pull against you. Think about envision. Probably you're about a month into it now. And it's kind of like, oh, I made that commitment. What was I thinking? Christmas is here. You know, start sacrificing. Should I do? Listen, this is a part of it. This is that now when it starts, the rubber meets the road and it gets a little tough out there. Let's let that sacrifice be a part of our life. That's exactly the way Paul was. Despite the circumstances, he rejoiced in it. Despite the limitations that he couldn't go out and be free, he rejoiced in it. Viktor Frankl. Spent several years in German Nazi concentration camps and even spent some time in Auschwitz, though he was able to be freed before his death because Auschwitz was certain death if you went there. In the different concentration camps that he went to, he was able to speak in his own writings of the, of the difference in the people from camps to camp and the different attitudes that helped make up the camp. And he said, we survived and he wrote this, he said, the experience of camp life show that we have a choice to make. And he goes on and he talks about what was the choice that, that needed to be made, that had to be made, that could be made, that made the difference in living and dying and, and having the right perspective in concentration camp. I dare say I would probably be worse than what Paul experienced. I don't know. This is what he said. He said, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may be few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that anything can be taken from us but one thing. The last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. The people on the outside that are free in Paul's life are in greater distress than Paul, who is in prison. And Paul is rejoicing. And he's calling them to rejoice. Is this just merely mind over matter? Is this just merely having the positive mental attitude? I think it's that, but it's more. It's a spiritual perspective on life. When you realize that people fail you, circumstances are never perfect, Life is never dealt up, served up, warm, fresh, and hot. And sometimes you just only have half-baked, half-goods, half the information. And that's your life. Now what are you going to do with that's your life? Are you going to complain of all the other pieces that you don't have? Are you going to complain because it's not warm and fresh? Are you going to complain because it's not what you envisioned your marriage to be? It's not what you envisioned your home to look like? It's not what you envisioned your career to be? Or are you going to take that life and you're going to say, these are the circumstances I have and I will rejoice in them. What a perspective we should have and could have. Baseline, you cannot allow the circumstances of our life to dictate your attitude. You cannot allow relationships in this world to, to affect and alter your attitude. Here's the third baseline decision that we've got to make. We've got to move past our setbacks. We've got to move past our setbacks. There's a story, a, a, a fairy tale, I'm sure, of a man who went to, um, to an island. He was a shoe salesman, went to an island to sell shoes. He got on the island and he noticed all the natives were without shoes. 
10,000 people on the island, not a shoe. The guy texts back to his Chicago office and says, listen, I'm coming home. Nobody wears shoes. Another man goes to the same island. He says, hey, there's 10,000 people without shoes. He texts his home back in Chicago and he says this. He says, send 10,000 pairs of shoes. What's the difference? The difference was one person saw that he didn't have a market. Another person saw that the market was plentiful. The only difference I want to point out again is your attitude on life. You got Epaphroditus who is a friend, uh, who's a member of the Philippi church, and, and he has been with Paul, but Paul, but Epaphroditus becomes sick. And in that, in that journey there, he, be, he becomes sick nearly to the point of death. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back home. Most people believe with this letter and maybe even the Colossia letter, and he drops them off along the way. And as he goes back home, this is where we find him picking up in verse 25 of chapter 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now notice all the connections. He's my fellow soldier, he's my fellow, and he's your minister. So he's making the connection here, great relationship. He says, for he has been longing for you. Now, if you go back at another time, whenever John Mark bells on Paul, he, he, he has low tolerance level for people who quit. But now he's longing for home and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Right, so he's sick, not doing well. And so he's now ready to go home. And indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also uh, on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice, there's that word again, at seeking him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for nearly, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He, he, he can't get away from it. He, he constantly comes back to it. And even when personal limitations are out there, even when setbacks are there, people are, are about to die, does he stop rejoicing? Even though he's losing his compadre in ministry, his fellow soldier, he's sending him away. And now his aloneness is going to be amplified. Even in the midst of all that, what's Paul's attitude? His attitude is, I will rejoice. How many of you all this past week experienced a setback? Don't raise your hands. Because I would dare say in your job, in a relationship, there's a good number in this room that this past week, this past month, even as you think about the holiday season, you are already in setback mode. And so many times, again, we allow the externals to determine the internal. Instead of allowing the internal to shape the external. Don't allow those circumstances to overwhelm you. Bob Cocken says it like this. He says, I can make sense... Uh, excuse me. I can make you rise or fall. I can work for you or against you. 
I can make you a success or a failure. I can control the way you feel and act. I can make you laugh, work, and love. I can make your heart sing with joy and excitement and elation. Or I can make you sick and listless. I, I can make you under a shackle, heavy, attached, and burdensome. Or I can, like a prism, ooh, dancing light that lasts forever when captured by pen and purpose. I can be nurtured and grown and be great and seen by the eyes of others through the action in you. I can never be removed, only replaced. I am a thought. Why not know me better? And I would say, I'm your attitude. Choosing the right attitude is not just merely positive mental energy. It is not merely pop psychology. It is biblical and it is right. Because I can tell you this, in, in the time since starting Grace Point and moving you know, out in our own life and seeing the ups and downs and the setbacks and just even thinking through all of this, there's a lot of my own life. There's a lot of things that I can look at my own life and I can say, Mike, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be here. God shouldn't use you there. There's a lot of excuses for that. And I have to kind of go back and I have to say, God, I want to rejoice. I want to have your attitude despite my circumstances, despite people. I want to have your attitude. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says it like this. I will rejoice, for I know this, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Paul knew that even though he did not know his future, he knew that life had been dealing him a very painful blow. But somehow in the midst of all of that, he refers to the prayers of the people and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that he would get through and he would he would be stronger. Therefore, he would rejoice. Now, just as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed and your heart is being very attentive right now, I just I want to pray for you. I want to pray that if it's circumstances that you're dealing with, if it's the rude, crude people of this world that you're dealing with, if it's a setback, that you're dealing with, you will somehow find in the midst of all of it the capacity to rejoice. If you're here today and you say, Mike, I want to be prayed for because I need that attitude adjustment. Would you just lift up your hand and just put it back down? Just say, I need it. Father God, you've seen the hands lifted to heaven. You know the dark night of the soul that some in this room are facing and living in and walking in. Father, and there's so much about our world and our lives that cries out unfair, 
cruel, unusual punishment upon us. But Father, there's a man named Paul, and the inspiration of, of your spirit, he wrote a letter that this day is challenging us to rejoice. whatever you give us and whatever comes our way.